Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy and a delight to be able to share God's word briefly with you this morning. Hebrews chapter one is where we will be today. We continue in our verse-by-verse journey through the epistle to the Hebrews. If you have not yet um, got your hands on one of the Hebrews study guides, um, I would implore you to get one. Um, They're $10. We're not making a cent off of them. Um, That'll take us through the first seven chapters of Hebrews. There's space there for pre-reading, for group discussion, for personal study and devotion, um, and then for sermon notes as well. So you guys can study up before the sermon, and then in the space for notes, you can critique how well studied up um, I am, um, which I want to keep you entertained over the next 35 minutes or so. But a a lot of work went into that resource. I'd really encourage you, if you want to get to grips with this incredible ancient text, that'll be um, one of the the key ways that you can do that and devote this next um, year and a half of study to a single book as we do that together as a church. Now remember the context um, to the letter, the epistle to the Hebrews. It's a a letter written in the first century and pretty early at that. It's written to a group of Jewish believers, right? So it's not just a witty name. I wonder why they called it Hebrews because that's who it's to, right? We're not sure who it's by, but that's the receivers of the letter. They are believers, Jewish believers, whose lives had been completely upended by one singular claim. A claim that sounds super familiar to us, but that was very, very radical to a Jewish believer in the first century. Here was the singular claim that changed their lives. Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He was the promised one of God, his sent son. They believed that, they changed their entire worlds, right, on that claim. And this letter that you have in your hands is an exhortation. The writer says a brief exhortation later in the letter, which are like 13 chapters of brief exhortation, right? In the email of the day, imagine someone emailed you a brief email um, of 13 chapters, right? You're like, I hope this email finds you well. You're like, it does not. Look how long this thing is, right? But he calls it a brief exhortation. What's the exhortation? Keep believing that unique claim. Don't shrink back from it, even and especially in the face of difficulty, opposition, and what was beginning to come against these believers, persecution. You see, the Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah for generations, and everything they had read, everything they had been taught, everything they had heard in the temple suggested that this Messiah would be a mighty earthly military warrior king who would come to liberate Israel and establish a kingdom that would be greater than Rome, right? Their their oppressors, one that would rule and reign over the entire globe forever and always. Now listen, let's just have empathy then, right? You're like, well, why were these Jewish believers wanting to go back to Judaism? Why were they so lame, right? It's in the first generation of people having witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Where's their faith? We must have empathy with the recipients of this letter. They had placed all of their hope in the fact that this humble Galilean peasant who looked nothing like the one they had anticipated, right? And who had died a shameful and agonizing death at the hands of the oppressors they believed he was coming to overthrow. They believed that this this Galilean peasant was actually the Messiah, the promised one the king of kings, the one they knew had come to make all things right. And yet, all things were not right. Rome was still reigning, right, with an iron fist and in fact was starting to 
oppress them for their faith. And, and perhaps even worse for them as Jewish believers, their Jewish brothers and sisters who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they saw this group as dangerous heretics. And so they were disowning them. They were disinheriting them. They were pushing them to the outside of society and persecuting them even from within their own community. And where was this great kingdom? That was promised when the Messiah came, everything was gonna be awesome. Where was this resurrected king who promised that he would be right back, right? And by this stage, they've been waiting 30, 40 years, right? A generation in that day and age. They're going like, wasn't he coming back? I thought he was coming back. I thought we were in the end days. I thought, I thought that this was gonna happen. Where was he? And so some of them were just going, you know what? Maybe we got it wrong, <laughs> Maybe we should just go back to what we know. Maybe we should go back to what we had practiced for the rest of our lives. Maybe Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. Maybe he wasn't the all-conquering king that we thought he was. Maybe following him wasn't actually worth it with our whole lives. And it's in this context and to those people that the writer of Hebrews writes this letter and with the opening lines that we will examine today. Opening lines, friends, listen, I can't, I can't express the significance of these. Opening lines that have such cosmic repercussions if they are believed uh, uh, and, and that they should alter literally the way we live and view the world if we embrace them as true. Opening lines about the magnificence of Christ as he really is today in all of his glory, even and perhaps again, especially when that glory seems obscured, when we can't see it through the mist of our lives and our broken circumstances. Friends, what do you think about when you think about Jesus? I confess that I struggled to hold the tension of his tenderness and his transcendence, right? I tend to just put myself in one of those because I can't hold those two things together. Just by the way, if you're gonna hold right doctrine in the Christian faith, tension is a wonderful word because you're often gonna have to believe two things at one time. We like very compartmentalized thinking. Well, God is bigger than our systems of thought, right? And so you're often gonna have to say this is true and this is also true, and they're both true of our wonderful God, right? That's, that's not postmodernism, right? That's not saying everything's true. It's saying that, no, all these truth claims in the scriptures are actually true. And our system of truth perhaps isn't big enough to be able to embrace them all and to understand them all. I struggle to hold the tension of his tenderness and his transcendence, of his grace and his glory, of his humility and of his eternal holiness. There's been a lot of emphasis in the church lately on the humility and gentleness of Jesus and we've needed, right? We've needed it. The last three years have been like a beatdown, right? Um, like any other years haven't been, but uh, we live in the, the, the delusion of some kind of good old days. Every year apparently is an Anna's Horribilis, right? And that um, we just endure it, but our memories play tricks on us. But, but I know there's been a lot of suffering in the last few years particularly, right? And so people have embraced this idea of, of Christ's humility, of his, of his nearness, of Philippians too, right? Me too, and I love it. My, it's been necessary. My favorite book of the last couple of years was Gentle and Lowly by Dana Ortland. It's an entire book dedicated to this thought, right? It focuses on Jesus' imminence, his nearness, his approachability, and it does it so beautifully, right? And the writer to the Hebrews you're gonna see over the next 45 weeks, if you stick with us, is gonna speak about Christ's humility and his gentleness a whole bunch. But here when he starts, 
when he wants to just set the stage um, for a people who are struggling to believe, he starts with something else completely. He starts with the eternal magnificence and majesty of Jesus Christ, our King. When was the last time you just sat with the sheer magnitude of who he is and what that means for us? There's gonna be seven claims about Christ today that are gonna boggle your mind. I want you to just sit with them and go like, can you believe this about Jesus of Nazareth? So many of us can go like, no, I believe he really lived. I believe he really died. I even believe that he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hooray, right? And he's coming back for me. Yay. And he's gonna be my friend. But when we hear these things about who he really is, can you believe this? And what does it make of your life as a follower of Jesus, <laughs> as a worshiper of Jesus? Does the way you're doing life make any sense if these things are true? This text this week, friends, sure. It really helped me to lift my head. <laughs> I didn't want to preach this week. I nearly bailed on preaching this week. We've got a wonderful preaching team. And I was like, Maddie B, you're up, right? So Matt Blackwell from Northwest, I was like, People at West and St. John will love him. He's suburban lumberjack like the rest of us and he'll crush it, right? And, and I read his sermon outline. I was like, I can't really beat that, right? It's really, really good. And I was feeling overwhelmed this week. The grief that has been chasing me down for a couple of weeks finally caught up with me on Wednesday or Thursday. And its effect was um, disorienting to the extreme, right? Grief's such a strange thing. Uh, even grief and faith. And I found myself, I imagine, a little bit like the first hearers of this letter. Believing with my heart, but wondering a little bit what this is actually all about. Now, wondering a little bit what's happened to our prayers over the last couple of years. Wondering uh, what or who truly holds the whole thing together and keeps it moving and to what end. <laughs> right? But this text gripped me and helped me and humbled me. And so it's my privilege to share it with you this morning. And so I stand here this morning and plead with you to pay attention to who Jesus is. <laughs> because if these claims are true, they simply have to change everything about us. We can't be casual or disconnected or unchanged observers of these claims this morning. They either must change everything or they're the biggest load of nonsense ever claimed about a person in the history of the world. As much as I know that we need this perspective today, I'm very aware I have no ability to help you see it. None. I try to think of witty illustrations. I try to think of rhyming couplets, alliterated the thing to death, right? Took seven points, made it three because we're Baptists. Like, I tried everything, right? Baptists can only do three points, so it's never a fourth, right? Um, and, and, and the third point is always don't drink. Um, but uh, I, I, tried, I tried everything, right? To, to, to try and make this thing memorable, to make it sticky, right? To, to, to make it, uh, you know, kind of stand out in your mind. I just can't do it. And so last night I have this tradition. Um, on a Saturday night before I preach a text on a Sunday, I've got the full library of every sermon that Charles Haddon Spurgeon ever preached. I don't read them before Saturday because otherwise I would just read his sermons, right? <laughs> and just be like what he said and close in prayer. Um, and so I, I don't want to be lazy, so I want to prep my own message. But on Saturday night I always read what Spurgeon said. And I read that Spurgeon preached this text on May 21st, 1882 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he said in his introduction that he had never felt so weak in preaching a message and that any effort to preach these words is like trying to hold up a candle to the sun as if God needed any help in revealing his light. <laughs> and so friends, I bring a little candle. <laughs> 
this morning. I can't hold it to the sun, but I've been begging the Spirit to let us just see a glimpse of who Christ is this morning. So here's what we're gonna do. We're actually gonna pray. <laughs> I wanna pray. Why don't you pray? If you're an unbeliever in this place, why don't you pray? pray. Hey, Jesus, if you're real, I wanna see you as you really are. Believers in this place, I want you to pray. Lord, I want to see you. Uh, Father, reveal who Christ is. Right? And then I'm just going to work through it. Old-fashioned Bible study, seven observations from two verses. We'll see what the Lord does. All right, why don't you pray with me? Lord, we see in like a dimly lit mirror. It's obscured by our own worldviews, by our own lack of faith, by our own suffering, by our own success, by our own circumstances, by our own hopes, our own fears, our own disappointments. And so we look and we look and we try to see you, we try to see your son for who you really are, but we can't. And so Holy Spirit this morning, give us a glimpse. Holy Spirit this morning, show us a fresh how magnificent the resurrected son is. We can't understand it. I can't tabulate it. I can't draw it out. But I pray that we just feel it today, that we know it in our beings. I pray that those who have been toying on a walk with Jesus would just see the folly of that today and would just follow with their whole hearts. I pray for those who are suffering, who are going, is Jesus really there? I mean, I know he cares, but can he actually do anything about it? I pray that you would give them faith today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work that I know that you love to do, which is to make much of the sin. Why don't you do that through the text today? In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Didn't Holland do such a great job of that last week, right? Even with a dud microphone, every time Holland preaches, I become a Christian again, right? I've been saved so many times. As many times as Holland's preached, I've given my life to Christ, right? Here's seven things. I'm just going to read them off. Don't just, just oof, Holy Spirit, help us. He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. (laughs) After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I can barely read it this morning. Can there remain any doubt, just to skeptics, as to what the early church thought of Jesus? This is first century, right? And so, so much of the combating thoughts against Christianity today says that the divinity of Jesus gets added in like the fourth century, right? This is first century. What do the first believers believe about Jesus? You can't make these claims about a man. You can't make these claims without being an absolute heretic, right? These would be blasphemous and preposterous unless they were held by people who believed that Jesus was the sent son of God, divine himself, the Messiah they had been waiting for. 
And so seven distinct claims that no man could claim of themselves, occurring in different categories of Jesus' identity and ongoing work in the cosmos. None of them leave any room for anything less than worship for us this morning. And so all I'm going to do is work through them and then we'll sing again and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit works the reality in us in a tangible way. Ready? First one. Jesus gets it all. Jesus gets it all. Look what it says. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Whom he, God the Father, appointed the heir, God the Son, of all things. Things. Friends, this is such an important concept in the ancient world, the concept of inheritance left to an heir. The firstborn son in Israel had a right to the belongings of the father's property and possessions. As the heir, all of the father's property belonged to the son in principle through the rest of his life. And it was just a wait until it became a full reality, right? Which I think made the latter stage of the father's life pretty awkward, right? Because the son's just waiting. How are you feeling today, pops? Good, good. A little sore, really, really, how sore? Um, should you go to the doctor? No, 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 I think it's fine. Um, just, uh, just uh, you know, go do some manual labor in the sun and see if you can work out the kinks, right? Because you're just waiting. That stuff that the father has is already mine. I'm just waiting for him to give it to me, to cede it to me, to, to give me my inheritance. The writer here is saying that Jesus as the son receives the inheritance of the father, but what is the inheritance of the father? Everything. <laughs> Jesus gets it all, the world, the people, the worship, all of it. And you might go, okay, well that's quite an esoteric, quite an abstract concept, but it's big, why? It means that we can trust him now as a steward of what is already his. He isn't going to waste his inheritance. He's gonna steward it well because he gets it in the end and he wants to get the fullness of what he has coming for him. Friends, you can trust Jesus with the world. When it looks like it's just going to hell in a handbasket, right? Like I, I went on news sites, I went on Apple News very briefly this week. It was a terrible mistake, very bad for my soul. Because what is it? It's wars and rumors of wars. It's plagues and rumors of plagues. It's division, it's you know corrosion. Everything feels like it's falling apart at a rapid rate. It kind of always has been, but now it feels like the pace has been increasing, right? It's earthquakes and, and polar vortexes and snow in Los Angeles, right? And you're like, what is going on? Friends, you can trust Jesus with the world. Why? He's gonna get it at the end. It's his. And so he'll steward it well. We can trust him with our circumstances. When you pray and your prayers bounce off the ceiling, when you ask and the only answer seems to be no or or silence, you can trust him because he's gonna get your life at the end. You can trust him with whatever resources he chooses to give to you and whatever resources he chooses to withhold from you. Why? They're his. (laughs) And he's a good steward. Friends, it's all his. And so he won't waste it. He won't ruin it. He won't let it get away. You know what one of the things that he's gonna get at the end of all things? You. (laughs) He's not gonna waste that. He's not gonna waste that, right? Second thing, Jesus gets it all. Jesus 
made it all. Now, this is complex, right? This has been confusing theologians for about 2,000 years. And I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, right? Or the sharpest knife in the drawer. And so when other theologians are confused, I just don't even try. I just go like, maybe, right? Like, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure, right? But look what it says. Through whom he also created the world. He's appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. What a throwaway line to drop in there. Right? Of cosmic significance. Oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean peasant. Oh yeah, he also made everything. Now remember the first readers of this, they're like, the guy with the sandals? The guy with the terrible friends? He made everything? He made everything. It's all his in the end because it was all his in the beginning, right? I love how um, Eugene Peterson translated this in the message. Don't judge me. Don't start a blog because I used the message in a sermon, right? Peterson has a PhD in Hebrew. And so unless you have one, all right, just, just slow your roll. Just, just a little bit, all right? Just a little bit. I, I, I think uh, he gets this right and that it shows the completeness of the, of the language that the writer is trying to represent here. Look how Peterson said it. He said, by his son, he flips the order. By his son, God created in the, the world in the beginning and it will all belong to the son in the end. Why is he the heir of all things? Because he actually made it all, right? And so because he made everything in the beginning, he gets everything at the end. This is the alpha and omega concept, the beginning and the end, the firstborn, right? And the, and the last, the, the one who started it all and the one who gets it all in the end. Now, this might be a new concept to you. You might go like, I didn't know Jesus was at creation, right? I didn't know he was active in creation. There's, there's a lot of mystery of the metaphysics of the Trinity, right? And so we don't fully know how the overlapping roles of agency work in this divine moment. But the New Testament goes to great lengths to, to tell us that Jesus is the one through whom it was all made. Now you might go, like, what does that word through mean? Don't know. Right? Um, come talk to me in my 70s when I'm finally smart, right? But, but John 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, this is big, right? For people struggling to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who did they believe was the Alpha and the Omega, the creator, right? The creator is the one who has ultimate power. And you have the writer of the Hebrews, and John is saying to his people, he is the creator, right? He's introducing this divine dance of the Trinity. It's amazing. Colossians 1.16, just go home and read Colossians 1, and then just weep, right? It's astonishing, now, Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. It's all his. Now just think about this for a second. The first century believers believed that this humble Galilean peasant named Jesus of Nazareth who lived in relative obscurity and who died at age 33, who never got married, who never seemed to uh, gain or inherit any kind of uh, temporary wealth or stature or, or, or major success in his lifetime. He's the one who made the world. What a claim. He made the mountain that they crucified him on. He made the stars that he slept beneath because he had nowhere to lay his head. He made the people that he then came and rescued. He even made the ones who crucified him and put him to death. They're his and they're treating him as if he is theirs. This is big, friends, because it shows the true power dynamic at play in the humility of Christ. So when you read Philippians 2 and you go, oh, Jesus is so humble, remember how humble. (laughs) 
Because remember who he is, right? The writer is saying to the Hebrews, remember that though he humbled himself, this, all of it, is his. And so when it looks out of control, it isn't. And when it looks like he has lost, he hasn't. And when it looks like you can't endure, you can. Jesus isn't out of control even and especially when your life feels out of control. Third one, oh, little candle, <laughs> sun. Jesus illuminates it all. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, I don't even know where to start with a concept as huge as this, and I'm not alone, right? This has befuddled uh, scholars. The Greek word used here for radiance is used only here in all of the New Testament. It's used once, right? And it doesn't seem to have parallels in any writings from the same period. The writer had to come up with a word to describe something so significant as the radiance of God, in the, in, in, of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what the concept is like, and I'm gonna butcher this. If you're a physicist, I apologize. I'm so sorry, right? But the concept here is like the radiation that emits from the sun, right? The sun itself is this massive entity, right? And it emits this radiating heat and light from which we get life. Now, I admit, listen, that I'm like most suburban men in their 40s who are trying to live forever um, and trying to deny the fact that I'm slowly dying. And so I listened to a podcast from a neuroscientist uh, called Andrew Huberman, right? And he nods in the room, just all the dudes are like, yeah, he's my guy, right? Huberman's my guy. Um, he speaks for two and a half hours and he makes us all feel smart, right? And, and it's amazing. You're like, I'm basically a neuroscientist now because uh, I listen to one. Um, and so uh, he has a big concept, a big principle that he says will change your life. A life hack, if you like. He says, instead of rushing to caffeine to kickstart your brain chemistry, what you really need to do is you really need direct access to the sun's radiation and its positive UV effects, right? And so if you drive around the suburbs in Austin, you see a bunch of dudes standing in the sun um, on their front porch. You found fellow Huberman listeners, right? And you give them a little nod because they know they get it, right? And so he says, first thing in the morning, direct sunlight. If you live in Seattle, too bad, right? Just no chance. Um, first thing in the morning is like 11.15 um, on that one Thursday in September when the sun shone. The rest of the time, sorry guys, you're dying, right? But he says that the radiation of the sun has this incredible positive impact on our brain chemistry, um, on our physiology, on how things function within us. And I've been trying it and it works, right? Not so well. I mean, I still go inside and have four cups of coffee, but... Um, <laughs> I feel better about it, right? And I feel like uh, I've made some kind of difference. But Huberman is quick to add some disclaimers, right? Because we know that just standing, staring in the sun is dangerous, right? He says, don't stare directly into the sun. Why? You'll go blind. It's called solar retinopathy, see in neuroscience. Um, and it's a result of too much UV absorption into the retina, it makes you blind. So a good thing, some light into the retina, some UV into the retina, really good. Too much of it, really bad, you'll go blind. Also, he says, please know that you aren't benefiting from the sun itself, but from the sun's radiation. He hates it when people write in and say, I've been standing in the sun. He's like, no, you have not. You've been standing in the radiation of the sun. The sun itself would be quite life inhibiting, right? <laughs> if you stood in the sun, it would shorten your life dramatically. You benefit from its radiation, which travels 93 million miles to get to you. Any less travel than that, if God had gone like, let's make it 92 million miles, right? And it would blind you and burn you, 
right? Now, I know in July we'd say, can't we make 94 million miles? Because um, it still feels too close. But the closest that science has got to the sun was a solar capsule that made it to within four million miles. And our cosmos, that's like next door, right? And what happened to it? It just burned up into nothingness. Friends, listen. If we cannot possibly look upon and get close to the actual sun, how on earth shall we look upon and get close to the one who made the sun and also the one who made billions like it? Well, the mystery is that in Christ, we have the radiance of God's glory in a way that we can look upon and not become blind. We have the warmth of God's energy in a way that we can experience without being consumed. The rays of light and warmth that have traveled the cosmos and taken on human flesh to an extent that we get to experience God's warmth and God's light without perishing instantly. Have you read the Old Testament? This is not how it goes for others who try and encounter God's glory directly. They cannot. Matt Blackwell, who's preaching at Northwest this week, he put it this way and it's so helpful. He said, Jesus makes God's radiance accessible. He makes God's greatness touchable. He makes God's holiness knowable. He makes God's presence near. He goes on to say the radiance became a person and walked among us. We can't imagine what it would mean for the heat of the sun to have its power personified. But Jesus is God's glory in a form that you can relate to. Jesus is God's glory in a form you can have a personal relationship with. God's glory was made personal in Jesus of Nazareth. Ah, friends, what a thought. But the writer isn't even done yet, right? Not only does Christ reflect the radiance of God's glory, but he also reveals exactly to us what God is like. Fourth one, Jesus reveals it all. He doesn't just illuminate it all. He doesn't just light it up. He also reveals what you're supposed to be looking at. Look again at verse three. It's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is such a beautiful image. It's one of a stamp that goes in a seal, right? And so when you seal an envelope, you take a stamp that has a crest on it and you press it into the seal. And when you pull it away, what do you have? You have an exact imprint of the original seal. It's the image of a, a die or a mold for imprinting a coin, right? And so a sculptor used to engrave an image of an emperor. And by the way, if he got it wrong, he would be executed, right? And so this was a pressure job. And so he would he would sculpt an image of an emperor in a die, an incredible detail. And then that image and that image alone was used to make all the coins in the empire. And as it pressed down into those coins, those coins were said to be an exact imprint of the image of the emperor. When God presses himself into the soft, warm clay of the world, he does so in the die of Jesus of Nazareth and the impression that is left is an exact representation of God's image. Now you can know God. <laughs> so goodness me, you don't have to wonder what God is like. Isn't that a relief? In Christianity, you don't have to wonder what God is like. He has spoken, and in these last days, he has spoken in his son, right? <laughs> so when you wonder if God is merciful, is there mercy for me? Well, Jesus is the friend of sinners. When you wonder if God cares about your suffering, then remember Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend. 
When you wonder if, if God is able to intervene, remember Jesus calming storms and healing sick and multiplying bread. When you wonder if God can redeem your broken past, then remember Jesus with the woman at the well or with Zacchaeus the fraudster, right? When you wonder if God is patient with your faithlessness, remember Jesus with Peter, and remember Jesus with Thomas, and remember Jesus with James, and remember Jesus with John. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. The writer isn't done. Oh gosh, this little flickering candle. Help us, Lord. Jesus keeps it all going. He keeps it all going. Look what it says. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word here, I know you didn't come for a Greek study, but it's interesting, perhaps. No. The word here is pharon. It's a present participle. In other words, it's an ongoing work. It means he continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. It all exists only at his ongoing say-so. You breathe only at his ongoing say-so. Listen, the second he says stop, it all stops. It all stops. It only keeps going because he allows it. Two. Now, I've already said I was really bad at physics at school, right? I mean, really bad, okay? And so we graded differently in South Africa, but even in a South African system, I got a G. Um, and <laughs> you don't need to be super smart to understand that's not a good grade, right? I was really good at cricket, really bad at physics, right? Um, but like so many things, um, when you get older, your thoughts on things change, right? So I hated physics at school, but now I've become fascinated by physics thanks to YouTube, um, right? And, and uh, I've been fascinated by physicists' quest to discover what lies at the center of animating matter. Why does anything have life, right? That's the big quest of physicists. One of the theories, which I understand is unproven and highly contested, right, as many of these theories are, but it's called string theory. String theory suggests that there is an animating force in the smallest subdivisions of all particles in all matter, which are like, this is quite beautiful, vibrating strings. They're smaller than molecules, they're smaller than atoms, they're smaller than quarks, which are super small, right? These tiny little strings giving everything energy and, well, life as they resonate in all matter around the universe. It's a beautiful metaphor, suggesting that the universe is a song. It's a symphony of sounds, of sounds emanating from a tiny vibrating set of strings. That sound, friends, is the voice of Jesus Christ. If God stopped speaking through Jesus for a moment, it would all collapse in on itself. Remember what happened at Christ's crucifixion? The created order started to unravel, right? The sun went dark, the earth split open, dead people started walking around, right? Why? For just a moment, the word of Christ went silent. <laughs> Friends, I know there are elements of your life that might feel out of control. They aren't beyond the word of Christ. You're breathing? That's because Jesus says you can. Don't waste it. Sixth one. Gosh, I've taken 40 minutes. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Look what it says, after making purification for sins. Friends, Jesus made purification for sins. This, this, this is huge for a Jewish audience steeped in the sacrificial system which served to make temporary and necessarily ongoing purification for sins. Why? They kept sinning. Have you noticed how you keep sinning? Well, in the sacrificial system, that means you've got to sacrifice again 
And so my daily readings had me in the book of Numbers this week, right? I love February and March. I'm like, oh, Lord, get me through this, right? Get, get me through to the hope of Job, right? Um, and, and, and I was in the book of Numbers this week. And, and, and one of the things struck me is the regularity built into the, 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 the calendar of the people of Israel for purification of sins. You know what I noticed? Hey, there's daily sacrifices. Why? You sin every day. Hey, there's weekly sacrifices, why? Because those sins stack during the week and once a week you need to remember that you're a sinner and that you need grace. There's quarterly sacrifices, right? Because once a quarter you kind of forget, oh yeah, uh, God's uh, at, the, uh, at the center of the universe. Then there's annual sacrifices because you've got to get together in an annual rhythm and you've got to remember um, all that you need and all the, all the requirement that, that, that you need to pay for your sin, right? So much sin means the requirement of so much sacrifice. Jesus comes in and he says there's one. And I've made that sacrifice once and for all. What a thought. He says here, it's a finished work. After, after he made sacrifice for sins. That means that he finished the work, right? After is a very important word in the Leicester house. Hey dad, can we have screen time? After you make your bed and brush your teeth and have a shower, right? And pick up after your pets. After. They come back to me and they say, like, now can I have some screen time? What am I going to do? I need to go see that the work is finished, right? I know here in the suburbs, you're like, you are cruel. That sounds like a concentration camp. That's called parenting, right? Um, and, And so we say, after, after you've done these things, they must be finished. Then you can do something else. Here it says, after he made sacrifice for sins. That means it's done. Friends, this is good news. woo because it means no more sacrifice for sin is necessary. And it means the ultimate sacrifice has already been made. And so this frees us up and it sobers us. Why? Because we remember that though we must obey God because of the, 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 the degree to which he sacrificed for us. And though you must repent to God when you fail to obey God because of the immensity of the grace that's available, you must also know what you never need to do. You know what you never need to do if you're a Christian? Listen. You never need to appease God. Never. Why? After he made purification for sins. You never need to make it up to him because you can't. (laughs) You don't need to sacrifice yourself. You can't. The sacrifice has already been made and it was accepted. Oh, one amen. No, okay. Amen. Amen. Jimmy's paid to say amen, so that doesn't count. (laughs) Friends, seriously, I wrestle this in my flesh. Some of me is like, oh, do I want feedback from the congregation? Some of me is, I just want to know, like, can you see this? Can you see this? Now you can live in the freedom of the forgiven. Don't hide your sin after he made purification. Purification's made, why would you hide? (laughs) And don't live a life of compromise. Pursue the holiness of the justified. Why? After he made purification for sins. Don't go on sinning. Don't go on doing it. Last one. Jesus finishes it all. He finishes it all. After making purification for sins, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is wonderful. (laughs) You know what the seated posture meant in the ancient world? Your work was finished. You know what's our primary health crisis in the world today? We sit too much. You know what their primary health crisis was? They never sat down, right? 
because there was work to be done. Now we have to overcome the fact that we sit all the time. Have you felt it, right? Three songs we sang this morning, you're like, whoa, goodness me, I wonder if we're going to get to sit, right? Uh, and it's a, I haven't sat in 14 minutes. What is this church? That's crazy, right? That's what revival is. I'm not interested, okay? Oh, you get to kneel? Okay, okay. What kind of flooring are we talking about? Uh, uh, but friends, the seated posture was only for those whose work was done, right? Jesus is seated. Because the work of purification is finished. And where is he seated? At the right hand of the Father and the seat of authority and inheritance. Where he is, listen to this, giving the universe permission to keep existing until he says that it no longer should. (laughs) That's our King Jesus. Friends, Jesus finishes his work. The work of salvation he began in you, he'll see it through. The work of sanctification he is working in you, he'll see it through. He finishes his work. All right, how do we respond? Well, surely not. Surely not with another Sunday of passive indifference. If this is true of Jesus, then there's really only one logical response. He gets it all, he gets our whole lives. He gets our worship, he gets our work, he gets our money, he gets our wonder, he gets our trust, he gets our obedience, he gets our relationships, he gets our very selves. Love what the good Bishop of Durham N.T. Wright said. He said, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? (laughs) That fire has become flesh? That life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Don't live in the shallow. I told you at the beginning that the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon preached this text on 18, in 1882. Here's how he exhorted his congregation in conclusion. So here's how I'll close. He says, there is no glory in God, but what is also in Christ. Whatever God is, Christ is. Who will dare to turn his back on him? If this is God's ambassador who comes clothed in the crimson robe of his own blood to redeem humanity, who will refuse the peace he brings? Is it not a wonderful thing that he made purification for our sins even before we had committed them? There they stood before the sight of God as already existent in all their hideousness. The sweepers of the streets, the dishwashers of the kitchen, the cleaners of the sewers have honorable work compared to this. And yet, the holy Christ, incapable of sin, stooped to make purification for our sins. This is our King Jesus. Don't shrink back into a life of mediocre compromise. Oh, my dear friends, a flickering candle 
ignore it, but behold the sun, the radiance of God's glory. And let's not look away. Father God, thank you so much uh, for your word. (laughs) Lord, I have no ability or capability um, to help explain that in a way that helps us to believe it. I I don't think we're supposed to. Lord, this week it's helped me a lot to just remember the magnificence of your son. In the midst of some things that, that haven't worked out at all like we would want them to work out, I've needed to know a savior who is near, who's a friend of sinners, but who is seated at your right hand. I need both of those things and I found them in your son. Lord, help us to hold it in tension the mercy of Christ and the majesty of Christ. The humility of Jesus and the holiness of him ruling and reigning with you eternally. Father, I believe that if we have breath in our lungs today, it's just by the say-so of your son. Don't let us waste another one. In Jesus' name.